This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of drug use and domestic violence. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Multicolored lights came up around a small stage as the slow psychedelic music started to build. The crowd thrummed with anticipation. They had lined up around the block to witness a revolution in music. They'd all been told that Pink Floyd was like nothing they'd ever heard before. It was all thanks to the band's mysterious frontman, the disheveled genius who stood not in the spotlight, but somewhere in the shadows off to the side. As Sid Barrett started to strum his guitar, the audience cheered. But as the lights passed over Sid, the audience stopped. His cold, vacant stare was unsettling. He held his guitar loosely, as if he barely knew how to use it. And then he sang. It was more like otherworldly moans than coherent lyrics. This was nothing close to how he sounded on the records. He was only plucking a single droning note over and over. Some thought it was a joke at first, but he just kept going. The crowd was confused, then worried, then belligerent. This wasn't what they'd paid to see. A few frustrated fans tossed their beer bottles at the stage in protest. The band was unfazed. This had become the status quo. Sid Barrett was losing his grip. But as long as the crowds kept coming, the show had to go on. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. A show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. 
You can find episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our eighth episode exploring the dark side of the music industry. The business has, especially in the last century, been synonymous with some of the most sordid aspects of our society. From rampant drug use to the exploitative creation of pop stars to brutal violence and murder, the industry can be a volatile and dangerous environment. This week, we're taking a look at Sid Barrett, the co-founder of Pink Floyd, one of the most popular and influential rock bands of all time. His inventive guitar work and creative lyrics led a revolution in English rock music and brought Pink Floyd from the underground into the mainstream. But the pressures of fame mingled with heavy drug use proved too much for Sid. Not long after achieving success, Sid began to behave erratically and even violently The demands of the industry, and possibly the effects of an underlying mental illness, drove Sid to a mental breakdown. He was cut out of the band he helped create, and spent much of his life afterward in extreme seclusion. To understand Sid's unique genius and the struggles he faced in the music industry, it's necessary to first understand how he grew up. Roger Barrett, who came to be known as Sid, was born on January 6, 1946, in Cambridge, England. His father, Dr. Arthur Barrett, was a well-known pathologist. His mother, Winifred, stayed at home and was actively involved in the Girl Guides, also known as the Girl Scouts. The Barrett family was well-off, and Sid was classically educated. He showed an early passion and talent for painting and became one of his high school art teacher's favorite students. But outside of art class, Sid didn't have much patience for the stuffy traditions of the school. He, along with a few rebellious friends, were known for skirting the rules. On more than one occasion, they broke into the school at night and wrote nonsense on the walls or otherwise vandalized the property. One of Sid's friends at the time, Anthony Stern, claimed their mischief was largely swept under the rug thanks to the privilege of their upbringing. He said, We got away with stuff because we were middle class. And I noticed that throughout my entire life in Cambridge, you could get away with stuff if you spoke posh. Though he avoided getting in serious trouble, Sid developed a reputation for being a rule breaker. His edginess and natural charm made him popular around Cambridge, and he never struggled to find friends or dates. At 14, he got his first guitar and frequently jammed with classmates between periods. Sid enjoyed a fairly pleasant life until the age of 15. In December of 1961, his father died of cancer. 
For months after that, Sid's grief was insurmountable. He found solace only in painting and music. With the help of his devoted mother and friends, he pulled himself out in time to graduate. In 1962, just before he turned 17, he was accepted into a renowned art school, Camberwell. While he was in art school, Sid found himself bored with classes and with painting. He started turning his creative energies toward music instead. He joined a series of slapdash rock and R&B bands, though they rarely ever played in public. After several bands crashed and burned, he was invited to join a group called T-Set by his childhood friend, Roger Waters. Sid joined in 1964 at the age of 18. At first, the band played mostly covers of early rock songs. The majority of the members, including Sid, were only amateur musicians and didn't have the capability to play anything too complex. Nonetheless, Sid began writing his own songs, though he didn't show them to anyone else for a long time. His first real contribution to T-Set was to change the band's name. By chance, he found the names of blues musicians Pink Anderson and Floyd Council on the inside of a record cover. It's unlikely Sid had heard much by either of the musicians, who were not at all well-known, but he liked the sound of their names. Sid christened the band Pink Floyd, and it stuck. The new Pink Floyd evolved under the influence of the underground counterculture of the 60s. LSD, beat poetry, and Eastern religions all had a big impact on Sid and the rest of the band. So much so that over the next two years, their performances changed drastically. Gradually, the band started playing more complex pieces. Gone were the rock and roll covers, replaced by strange, meandering collages of sound. Sid led the band as its primary lyricist and experimenter. His background in visual art led him to incorporating homemade psychedelic light shows into the band's performances. The shows were a hit, and soon the underground was buzzing about the trippy thrills of a Pink Floyd show. Their success was accelerated by the leadership and likability of its frontman. Though many bands at the time were experimenting with different musical styles, no one had the unique cool of Sid Barrett. He was friendly with everyone, and it was clear he really believed in the music the group was making. He wasn't in it for the fame or success. He just loved to push boundaries. By 1967, when Sid was 21, even the mainstream music industry had begun to take notice. That year, Pink Floyd was signed to EMI, and its first two singles met modest success on the UK charts. Following their second hit, See Emily Play, in June of 1967, things began to change rapidly for the band. Suddenly, they were seen as the forefront of the underground music scene in England. Some members, like bassist and singer Roger Waters, took to the fame well. But Sid had difficulty adjusting. He loved to perform and compose songs, but didn't relish the endless autograph signings and interviews EMI scheduled for them. It all seemed fake. He didn't enjoy the admiration of strangers, and he began to feel like he was always under pressure to live up to the expectations of his fans. 
the pressure increased throughout 1967, and even performing began to lose some of its luster for Sid. Pink Floyd's music was still somewhat on the fringes. Though they had some popular success with their more conventional tunes, many of their songs were long, improvisational, and difficult to categorize. The band had been in its element when performing in the English underground. But after they were signed to EMI, they were expected to perform at mainstream venues. Audiences at provincial pubs were not always prepared for trippy light shows and outlandish instrumentation, and they had no problem voicing their dissatisfaction. At more than one gig in 1967, frustrated audience members chucked beer bottles at the band. On one occasion, Roger Waters' face was slashed open by the flying debris. Despite the resistance, the band was expected to continue performing as much as possible. Sid reacted by growing detached and considerably quieter than before. Fellow musicians described him as seeming drugged out and empty inside. It was a stark contrast to the Sid from just months before, who had been charming, energetic, and even captivating. It was as if the life had been sucked out of him, his band members grew concerned, but he didn't open up to them. Instead, he retreated into his own lonely world, usually with an acid tab in hand. The problem was Pink Floyd was on its way to achieving huge success, but it hadn't at all been what Sid expected. He just wanted to share his art and push musical boundaries. He felt stifled by his new responsibilities, performing in front of hostile audiences, engaging with journalists who thought he was leading children into drug abuse and deviance. As we've discussed in other episodes, the pressures of sudden fame and the vitriolic criticism that often comes along with it can be intensely damaging to artists who are unprepared. Elvis Presley reacted by withdrawing into an entourage of paid sycophants, Sid Barrett just withdrew into himself, cutting himself off even from old friends. Record executives were not too concerned at first. As long as Pink Floyd kept performing, the mental health of its members wasn't their problem. But by July 1967, the 21-year-old Sid's detachment started affecting their bottom line. That month, Sid became fed up during the recording of a show for the BBC and suddenly left the studio with no explanation. Their manager was forced to pick up the pieces, telling the producers that Sid had suffered a nervous collapse. If the record company really believed Sid was in the midst of a nervous collapse, they did nothing to help him recover. They gave Sid a slap on the wrist for his absence and told him it better not happen again. The very next day, Sid arrived at their gig in London, stoned out of his mind. He had taken an impressive amount of acid and could barely hold his guitar. The band powered through and choked out a disappointing performance. A couple days later, Sid took the same massive amount of LSD before a concert in Torquay in southwestern England. Once again, the other members tried to cover for him, but their front man was too far gone. The show was a disaster. 
Following that performance, Pink Floyd canceled several upcoming shows, claiming that Sid was in the midst of nervous exhaustion and couldn't perform. The so-called exhaustion seemed to come and go. Only a week later, the band recorded a new song written by Sid, and the session went well. In light of this sudden change, many hoped that Sid just needed a break. They figured he was temporarily shocked by the newfound fame. After all, the band had been signed less than a year ago. They were all still adjusting to the new lifestyle. As for the drugs, almost everyone was taking acid at the time. In fact, friends and acquaintances later reported that Sid wasn't taking any more than everyone else. Perhaps he was more sensitive to its effects, or his drug use was only a symptom of larger mental issues. Either way, Sid's drug habit only increased now that the band's upcoming shows were all canceled. He moved into a house on Cromwell Road, a notorious area for the burgeoning hippie scene. The other denizens of the neighborhood encouraged each other's experimentation with drugs. According to David Gale, a longtime friend of Sid, there were still some culturally powerful people moving through, but there were also some quite damaged people. People who rolled over on their babies and smothered them because they were on smack. And many of them were desperate for Sid's attention. Groupies saw Sid as a deep, mysterious, and attractive artist and flocked to him for validation. Women brought him gifts, drugs, and shirts they'd made for him to wear. At times, Sid courted the attention, but it quickly became too much. He closed his door and refused to come out no matter who was knocking. The more the public and his record label begged for him, the further he withdrew into himself. Soon, he seemed so far away that no one would ever be able to reach him again. Coming up, we'll explore Sid's increasing isolation and mental breakdown. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Now back to the story. In 1967, 21-year-old Sid Barrett was in the midst of mental turmoil. As his vision helped Pink Floyd rocket into the spotlight, he felt hamstrung by the pressures of fame. He had never wanted to be the spokesman for anything, but now he was being heralded as the preeminent voice in the English underground. He reacted by cutting himself off from the outside world and self-medicating with drugs, primarily LSD. 
By September of 1967, Sid's disinterest in the band and the demands of the music industry were reaching a fever pitch. Even so, the record label, which had canceled some of the band's live dates a month before, put the group back on a demanding touring schedule. Sid responded by messing with the tuning on his guitar before performances, until he was just hacking at a pile of rattling strings. On another occasion, he called the band into a recording session and taught them a new song entitled, Have You Got It Yet? Every time his bandmates nailed part of the tune, Sid would play the part again differently, claiming they had gotten it wrong. At other concerts, he would simply stand limp and empty-eyed, endlessly plucking a single note on his guitar while the rest of the band performed. Despite the difficulties, the record executives were determined to squeeze every last ounce of productivity out of Sid and the band. They booked an American tour for Pink Floyd in November of 1967. Predictably, the shows were a disaster. Sid was more resolved than ever to opt out of the performances. According to one of their managers, at one gig, Sid did nothing but blow into a referee's whistle. Still, he also had moments of lucidity depending on his mood. He dutifully went on Dick Clark's talk show and slogged through the kind of boring, patronizing questions he hated the most. It seemed he wasn't entirely incapable of fulfilling his obligations, but he was getting fed up with the dog and pony show. Sid's attitude stood in stark contrast to the rest of his bandmates. In England, they had shared his annoyance at the cheesy interviews and ungrateful crowd. In America, they were invigorated. They wanted to cross over like the Beatles. They all felt they were on the verge of something big, and they couldn't understand why Sid was so disillusioned. After Sid all but ruined Pink Floyd's first concert in America by standing limp and quiet on stage, the rest of the band realized his behavior had crossed a line. He wasn't just having a laugh any longer. He really couldn't stand any of it. Sid's managers and bandmates tried to confront him, but none of it did any good. After several bad concerts in a row, their manager canceled the rest of the American tour at the end of November 1967. Apparently, the band had deluded themselves into believing Sid's problems were unique to his frustrations with America. When Pink Floyd came back to England, they went on tour alongside Jimi Hendrix and a host of other bands. Later, their managers claimed they were concerned for Sid's mental health after the disaster across the pond. But if they truly cared about Sid's state of mind, they probably wouldn't have immediately booked him for a seven-band tour. It was a demanding schedule. Pink Floyd was expected to play two shows a night for two weeks straight. But the band went through with it, including Sid, to an extent. The most he could bother to do most nights was to show up and shamble onto the stage high on hallucinogens. By the end of the 16-night tour, he looked like a husk of his former self. His formerly delicate features and bright eyes had disappeared, replaced by hollow cheekbones and a menacing stare. 
His behavior became just as frightening as his appearance. Several close friends claim he became physically abusive toward his girlfriend Lindsay Corner. Lindsay, however, claims this is untrue. But according to a longtime friend of Sid's, David Gale, Sid would hold Lindsay down and tickle her until she couldn't take it anymore. He also banged her head against the floor while she screamed for him to stop. David was so alarmed that he arranged for Sid to see a psychiatrist. He set up an appointment, but when the time came, Sid refused to go. As for the rest of Sid's friends, some claim that they took his erratic behavior as a sign of his creative genius. Since most famous creatives are known for rebelling against the norms of society, rule-breaking takes on a special mystique for artists. For those who admire breaking the mold, it becomes difficult to know where to draw the line. As a result, disturbing behavior perpetrated can go unchecked. Those who see value in pushing some boundaries worry about being seen as hypocrites for putting their foot down with a creative leader. This is one reason so-called visionaries are sometimes allowed to get away with acting inappropriately. Still, some believe that Sid's behavior could still improve. In between concerts, where he played limply and appeared vacant, there were flashes of creativity. He could still electrify audiences with passionate and inventive playing. For example, the band appeared on the British show Top Gear on December 31, 1967. The performance was solid and featured none of Sid's disruptive antics. Still, on the off days, it was clear that Sid needed help. Yet few intervened for fear that it might ruin his creative process. This mindset was actually representative of everything Sid had been rebelling against. He resented being the voice of the underground. He didn't like all the attention and admiration he got from being viewed as an avatar of creativity. And yet, the notion of an artist ahead of his time was exactly the image the record label cultivated. Stories about Pink Floyd's genre-transcending, cutting-edge music were encouraged. The light shows, psychedelic paraphernalia, and lyrical experimentation were employed as evidence that Sid Barrett, the eccentric musician, was a genius. For many in the hippie community, where Sid spent most of his time, he was an ideal to strive toward. Some thought it would be a sign of conformity to ask Sid to get help. They didn't want to discourage a great artist from being himself. The record label had no such problems confronting Sid, but instead of getting him help, they decided it would be easier to simply replace him. He was already beyond help. After a series of clandestine talks with the rest of the band, it was agreed that Sid had become too unprofessional and unreliable. At the end of 1967, they recruited an acquaintance named David Gilmore as a replacement guitarist. In January of the following year, Pink Floyd played several gigs, including both Sid and Gilmore. Then, without any explicit conversation, the rest of the band just stopped inviting Sid to the gigs. They never even told him that he had been replaced. Naturally, he caught on. 
Rick Wright, the band's keyboardist, was sharing an apartment with Sid, and he frequently snuck out to perform without him. There was only so long the ruse could be sustained. At some point, the band entertained the idea of keeping Sid on as a songwriter and using Gilmore to play his parts during concerts. But that proved untenable. Sid would no longer even show up to recording sessions. In April of 1968, the record label officially announced that Sid Barrett had been replaced. At 22 years old, he was unceremoniously cut out of the band he'd helped launch to fame. It's difficult to say what Sid's reaction was. As always, he kept his feelings to himself. He made no public pronouncements and remained on generally friendly terms with the rest of the band. It's possible he felt that parting was for the best. He later expressed that Pink Floyd hadn't achieved what he had set out to do with his music. Whatever he was feeling, he was expected to work through his distress. In May, June, and July, he was called to the studio to record some solo material. His managers hoped he could find some success on his own without the demands of a touring band holding him back. During these sessions, Sid recorded his first attempts at what would become some of his most well-known material, including the song Octopus. But all in all, it was slow going. Sid was now incoherent much of the time. One moment, he would be lucid and engaged, and the next, he would fall into a pit of sallow depression and refuse to speak to anyone. His girlfriend, Lindsay, broke up with him due to the severe mood swings. One of his managers, Peter Jenner, said that by this point, they were treating Sid with kid gloves. They arranged for friends to make him dinner and tried their best to be overly conciliatory when he missed studio sessions. The general philosophy was that he would eventually pull himself out of the funk on his own. So for the time being, they let Sid behave as he liked. They tried to make things easier for him in the short term rather than going through the work of finding him help. One benefit of this relaxed attitude was that it allowed Sid to take a much-needed rest. After one last recording session in July of 1968, he took almost a year off. It invigorated him somewhat, but the completely hands-off approach of his friends also caused him some frustration. When the 23-year-old Sid finally returned to the studio in April of 1969, he was livelier and more focused than anyone expected. For the next few months, he was extremely productive, finishing up his solo album, The Madcap Laughs, with the help of his former bandmates, David Gilmore and Roger Waters. The sales were by no means incredible, but they were enough to get EMI to commission a second solo project. This second record was completed much more quickly, largely thanks to David Gilmore's producing and management. But Sid was slipping back into creative detachment. He could only come up with the barest ideas for songs and lyrics, which required Herculean efforts from Gilmore to flesh out. Almost no one else could get anything out of Sid, but Gilmore was patient and friendly. With his constant encouragement, the album entitled Barrett was finished in a matter of months. 
Those sessions would be the last time Sid ever recorded his own material. The results were a mixed bag. There are clear moments in his final songs where he showed the same passionate creativity he did in the early days with Pink Floyd. But there are just as many where he seemed to have given up. People who knew Sid while he was recording remembered him as childlike. He wandered around aimlessly, visiting friends with no warning or reason. Cora Barnes, an employee of the publishing company, recalled a time when Sid came into her office with a bag of small lemon-scented shampoos. When she asked Sid why he didn't buy a single large bottle, he responded, Oh no, these are much nicer, don't you think? Then he said goodbye and left. His apparent disconnect with reality extended even further. He threw lit cigarettes on the ground instead of using an ashtray. Once, when a girlfriend asked him to stay in bed with her, he unceremoniously grabbed her and threw her from the mattress to the floor. Friends and acquaintances simply looked on, unwilling to intervene. There was no help from his managers or record executives either. After his second solo album was completed in July of 1970, it was clear to the label that Sid was all but finished. He was no longer profitable or reliable, so they simply cut the cord. Sid responded to the indifference by retreating even further into himself. The only one who had stuck with Sid through it all was his most recent girlfriend, Gayla Pinion. In October of 1970, the two got engaged and moved back to Cambridge near Sid's family. Unfortunately, being in a familiar environment would only serve to strain the few relationships Sid had left. Soon, he faced the prospect of being completely alone. Coming up, we'll explore just how far Sid Barrett fell. Now, back to the story. In late 1970, 24-year-old Sid Barrett was more erratic than ever before. After being kicked out of Pink Floyd and recording two solo albums, he found himself bereft of creativity. He moved back to his hometown, a broken man. Unfortunately, the familiar environs of Cambridge didn't curb Sid's unsettling antics. He threw a family party where he announced his engagement to his fiancée, Gayla. But not long after the applause had died down, the couple began to bicker. Gayla anticipated one of his mood swings and tried to get him to calm down. But it was too late. Sid threw tomato soup all over her in front of his whole family. Later, he left without explanation. After about half an hour, he returned with his long hair haphazardly cut off. His relatives reacted largely in the same way his friends had. They didn't acknowledge the absurdity of what had just happened and pretended everything was normal. But Gayla could only pretend for so long. She took to spending time at a friend's house when Sid's behavior became intolerable. He, in turn, accused her of cheating on him with the friend. After everything else, his unfounded jealousy was too much. The two broke up sometime in 1971. 
Sid's behavior after the breakup remained much the same, but any remaining capacity he had to focus was leaving him. Still, he did his best to create. In 1972, 26-year-old Sid and two of his acquaintances formed the short-lived band Stars. Naturally, making any progress with the band was like pulling teeth. As the famous former Pink Floyd frontman, Sid was expected to lead the group, but he wasn't nearly up to the task. When a reporter asked Sid if he was putting together a new band, he responded by telling the journalist what he'd eaten for breakfast. When the confused reporter asked him to repeat what he'd said, Sid told him that he didn't speak French and left without another word. The incident may sound playful, but it wasn't a joke. At times, Sid was so spaced out that he was unable to carry on a conversation. Even so, his companions were determined to at least give the new band a shot. They played several small gigs around Cambridge, mostly doing material from Sid's solo albums. The shows received middling praise, but Sid's performances were far from impressive. His guitar playing was rudimentary and uninventive, and some nights, he seemed to have trouble remembering the lyrics to his own songs. After a few shows, stars fizzled out. It's unknown exactly why Sid gave up, but supposedly his confidence was shaken by a magazine review of one of the concerts. The review was mostly positive and flattering, so if it really did lead to the band's breakup, it's a demonstration of just how abysmal Sid's self-confidence must have been. There were even flashes of self-hatred and disturbing delusions. Around this time, his old high school flame, Libby Gosden, returned some of the high school diaries he had once given her as a gift. She thought the gesture might remind him of better days and serve as a pick-me-up. She had no idea how far Sid had gone. Libby brought her daughter with her to Sid's house, and Sid, for some reason, acted like the little girl was his own child. Libby hurriedly beat a retreat, leaving the diaries. Once she was gone, Sid burned them all, erasing his past as if it pained him to even think about it. But his past was inescapable. Between 1971 and 1973, EMI released several reissues of Pink Floyd's earlier material. It caused Sid's popularity as a cult figure to grow. The legend of Pink Floyd's guiding light, snuffed out too early, became pervasive in the underground. Sid, as always, shunned the attention. He was still not interested in giving interviews. He was, however, interested in the royalties the albums earned him. He began compulsively buying fancy new guitars, garnering close to two dozen before his music publishers started asking questions about the expenses. They were shocked to find out that Sid had been living in a hotel for months, running up an enormous room service bill and spending his earnings on musical equipment that he never used. For once, the publisher intervened, finding him a moderate apartment near the hotel and even hiring a moving van to pick up his things. Sid sent all his new guitars to the apartment, 
but continued living at the hotel without telling the publisher. Reasoning with Sid was impossible. It was clear to everyone, except record executives, that Sid just wanted to be left alone. Yet, driven by concern for their bottom line, they continued to press him to record new material. In 1974, the label finally got 28-year-old Sid to agree to return to the studio. Unsurprisingly, the sessions failed to yield anything usable. Sid refused to play anything for very long or expand upon the few melodic ideas he had left. He started unplugging his guitar in the middle of licks just to frustrate the engineers. For days, he refused to share his lyrics until it was finally revealed that he hadn't actually written any. Despite hours of meandering recording, there was nothing salvageable. Once again, Sid retreated from music, this time forever. His isolation was overwhelming. He went to an apartment in London and refused to see anyone other than his mother. He even refused old friends and well-wishers. It seems hardly anyone at all saw Sid for almost a year. Then, in 1975, he showed up at a Pink Floyd recording session in London without any warning. At first, no one in the band recognized him. He had gained a substantial amount of weight, and both his hair and eyebrows were shaved. No one knew who had even told him about the recording, but his appearance was prophetic. The band was recording their album, Wish You Were Here, including a tribute track dedicated to Sid, Shine On, You Crazy Diamond. Though there is definite evidence that Sid's visit took place and that his appearance was distressing, nothing else about it is clear. Some who were present claim he stayed only briefly and was nearly catatonic. Others claim he stayed for as many as three days and was more or less lucid. Rick Wright, the keyboardist, stated that Sid repeatedly took a toothbrush from his pocket and brushed his teeth without toothpaste while speaking. No matter what exactly happened, the visit was not a happy one. It was clear that the past year had not been kind to Sid. The random Wish You Were Here session was the last time most members of Pink Floyd would ever see him. After the sessions, Sid returned to an apartment in London and closed himself off once again. Some days he went to a pub down the street and spent all day pounding beers. On others, he got high in his apartment and smashed the place up with a bat. He continued to spend money recklessly, buying expensive electronics and instruments only to give them away or throw them in the trash days later. For the latter half of the 1970s, no one knows for sure what Sid did. He rarely went out, gave no interviews, and saw no friends. Most likely by then, he had no one to see. Yet even as he retreated from the public entirely, his legend refused to die. Buoyed by Pink Floyd's incredible success following his departure, myths of Sid's antics grew wildly. Artists from David Bowie, 
to the Sex Pistols became diehard fans of Sid Barrett. They tried desperately to pull him out of hiding to produce a record. They even contacted his family, hoping they would convince Sid to come out of seclusion. The image of Sid as a tortured genius focused more on the attractive idea of his genius than the reality of his torture. It seemed impossible for the public, even for other musicians, to understand that Sid wanted out. No matter how far he retreated, his fans still hungered to pull him back in. His total seclusion continued into the early 1980s. In 1982, at the age of 36, he left London permanently and returned to Cambridge. Naturally, he made the journey in the oddest way possible. He walked. It took him four days to cover some 60 miles. His feet were covered in enormous blisters by the time he finally made it home. Soon after returning to his mother's place, he suffered another breakdown and smashed much of the house up. His 77-year-old mother was terrified. For the first time, Sid was taken to a mental health facility. Unfortunately, he didn't stay there long. After a few days, the facility unceremoniously announced he suffered from a personality disorder and couldn't be helped. They released him back into the custody of his overwhelmed mother. A few months later, he was taken to another mental health facility and remained there for a year. Sadly, it was too late for much to be done. The years of drugs, alcoholism, and underlying mental issues had wreaked their havoc. Sid was largely unresponsive to social therapy, but the treatment stabilized him enough for him to return to his mother's house in 1984. His days were variable, and he needed a lot of help from his sister to get by. His mental health was not helped by the gawking tourists and journalists that harassed him. They stood outside his door, snuck into his backyard, and generally made life difficult for an unwell man who just wanted to be left alone. Aside from the interruptions, Sid managed to live a quiet life in his last years. He often went to art museums and botanical gardens on his own. He even took up painting again and found relief in creating a different kind of art. He had been doing well for a number of years when in 2006, he passed away from pancreatic cancer at the age of 60. Sid Barrett fit a lifetime of musical creativity and talent into just a few years of activity. His vision helped Pink Floyd break into the mainstream. And even after he left the band, his legacy helped make them one of the most successful groups in rock history. Sadly, he was overcome by the pressures of fame, heavy drug use, and long untreated mental illness. Even so, his genius has never been forgotten, and his influence on popular music is indelible. If his issues had been taken seriously before they spiraled so out of hand, he could have accomplished even more. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. 
For more information on Sid Barrett, amongst the many sources we used, we found Rob Chapman's book, A Very Irregular Head, The Life of Sid Barrett, extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next week with a new episode of The Dark Side Of. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like The Dark Side Of, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream The Dark Side Of on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode was written by Terrell Wells and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>